So for many of us, um, Christmas is behind us. And once again, I hope that you guys have had a Merry Christmas celebrating. Um, But, you know, some of us are still celebrating the Christmas season. I say that because there's probably people that are uh, church, church family that are still celebrating with their immediate family this weekend. But unfortunately, for the most part, the Christmas season is behind us. I'm going to tell you this. Our students know this because I talk about this very, very frequently. I love Christmas season. I love Christmas time. So there's always a little bit of depression that hits at my household whenever, whenever uh, Christmas time is over. But um, hopefully over the, past, uh, uh, or the course of the past few days, or even over the past several years, I want you to look back over the time that you've celebrated Christmas time and think of situations that either for your own family or for families that you know, you see, people celebrate the Christmas season a little differently than others. You see, there are various ways that families can celebrate the Christmas season in particular, uh, there, there, there are even possibly a few quirky ways that people celebrate uh, this season. You see, whether it's watching Christmas movies with your family or preparing Christmas treats or, uh, you know, spending time with your family. You see, the season, the season of Christmas is filled with nostalgic traditions that I'm going to be honest with you, you may not have known that your tradition was weird until you either told a friend or until you got married. Right? Like, like we grow up and we have certain traditions that, that we don't really talk about. It's just what our family does. And then you share it with someone. You share it with a close friend. Or like I said, your, your spouse joins for your first Christmas. And afterwards, you go to the bedroom and nobody else is around. And your spouse says, what was that all about? We all have it. You see, in fact, it may be some traditions that you thought that everyone was accustomed to, but it actually only happened at your house. Growing up in the Bentley household, I am, I am the middle boy of three boys, and that may explain a little bit about who I am, but uh, we were always put to bed early on Christmas Eve. And in the earlier years, whenever we could stand being in the same room with each other, my parents would put all three of us in the same bedroom. I guess for controlled chaos purposes, and uh, we would sleep in one room, and uh, the problem was our bedroom, so we were told you need to go directly to bed, here's your bedroom, get in there, go to bed, and uh, the problem was we weren't quite ready to go to bed. My parents are here this morning, so we're going to pray about grace, or we're going to talk about grace here in a moment, and that's good, but our bedroom t- uh, television only had the main uh, networks, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, and uh, one of the weird holiday traditions that, that me and my brothers had growing up was watching Midnight Mass. We were never Catholic. It was literally the only thing on TV. Literally the only thing. So every year I'm texting my brothers, hey, are we going to FaceTime for Midnight Mass tonight, guys? Like, what, what's, what's going on? You see, we would watch Midnight Mass. We were, we were never, we'd never been to, to, to Midnight Mass. We were never Catholic. It just occurred because we weren't ready to go to bed. And because it was the only thing that was on TV. That's, that's possibly odd uh, tr- uh, Christmas tradition number one. I told Katie we had to watch it. And she was like, you were out of your mind. <laughs> the next thing is, uh, so we would finally go to sleep at no telling what time. And as soon as the sun would creep through the windows, it was time to get up. 
and we would wake up our parents, and on Christmas morning, our family would sit around the, in our living room, around the Christmas tree, like most normal families, and open up presents. And then the last main Christmas tradition of us growing up is for whatever reason, it seemed like before the last Christmas present was opened up, my mother was already taking ornaments off the tree. Like, we haven't even unwrapped the last, some, some people are like nudging your spouse, you're like, that, that, that's you, you know, like, like, we're in the middle of opening up the last gift, and my mom's already over there just taking down ornaments. You're like, what are you, what are you doing? But she hated the feeling of knowing that, or she hated the, the sight of a Christmas tree with no presents, so, so she started immediately taking that thing down. And I remember as a kid, we were sitting there just thinking, well, now what? You see, this morning we're going to be in a passage as we conclude our series, Come and Behold, um, with some of us asking the same question. You see, in this season of Advent, we have celebrated the coming of Christ. And now that we are, and, and, and now we're in a season of waiting on the second coming of Christ. You see, some of us might be asking the same question, now what? This morning we're going to be in the book of Titus, so you can make your way over to Titus, and we're going to uh, be reading and studying our passage from Titus. But before we dive into our passage, I want to give just a brief overview of this particular book. You see, the book of Titus was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to his protege, Titus, which is where we get the name. But uh, as you read this book, you're going to see that the main theme of this particular book is the inseparable link between uh, faith and practice. You see, as you read this book, you see that there, is a, that there is an inseparable link between belief and behavior. You see the first portion, so today we're going to be in chapter 2. And we don't have the time to go through all of chapter 2, but at the very beginning, first portion of chapter 2 in Titus, we see that it highlights what is sound doctrine. I would encourage you to go and read it. It's, it's, it's very encouraging. You see the Apostle Paul was describing what a life rooted in the gospel looks like. And you see, this brings us to our passage this morning. You see, the whole reason why we are living a gospel-centered, or living a life centered in the gospel, we see why it's impossible. So uh, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem, uh, for us to redeem us all uh, from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. You see this passage this morning. We see that the Apostle Paul is highlighting the grace of God as well as the glory of God. In fact, when you look at the description of both great, uh, the grace of God and the glory of God, both can be summed up with one term, with one word, and that is Jesus. If you're taking notes this morning, our first point is, is uh, through Jesus Christ, the grace of God is not only revealed, but salvation is made possible ultimately for His glory. You see, the first, por- the first portion of today's passage reminds us uh, what the Christmas season is really about. You see, it's not about the Christmas presents. It's not about the Christmas trees. It's not about the movies and the traditions. It reminds us that, uh, that God is a God 
that is interested in his creation. And you see, that goes against, uh, that, that goes against the mainstream uh, thought that if someone believes in God, that God just created us to just to leave us alone. No, you see, God is very, very much involved with his creation. You see, this is important. Uh, this is important because we have to understand that God is involved in his creation. And the reason why we know that is because he sent Christ in, w- in which we celebrate during the Christmas season. You see, in verse 11, we were reminded of what God has accomplished. And we also see not only what God has accomplished, but for whom he has accomplished it for. You see, prior to our passage this morning, as I mentioned, the first 10 verses of chapter 2, Uh, Paul is talking about sound doctrine. We see that Paul has told Titus to make sure what accords with sound doctrine is taught to all kinds of people who will pass along the doctrine of God our Savior to others. You see, Paul is not contending that worldwide evangelism has already taken place. You see, we see that this is the beginning of of, of the church. We, We know that the worldwide evangelism hasn't taken place at this point. But what he is talking about, what he's informing, is that the message of God's grace has been made available to all people. You see, this does not mean that all people will be saved. In fact, that would contradict what Scripture states. We see in 1 Timothy Chapter 2, this is another book that Paul writes in verse 3 and 4, says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, while everyone will not experience salvation, this passage reveals something that is extremely important, especially during this Christmas season, is that salvation has been offered to all people. You see, regardless of one's ethnicity, regardless of one's socioeconomic status, regardless of, of how someone has tried to earn their stuff, you see, salvation isn't, isn't predicated on any of those things. You see, salvation has been offered to all people. You see, the deliverance that Paul is talking about is described as grace. And, and, and the way that he talks about grace Uh, grace's delivery here on earth is that it simply appeared. You see, through Christ, the perfect atonement made all men savable. You see, no, no nation, no tribe, nor person is excluded from God's saving work. You see, this reveals a little bit about God's, about God's nature. You see, God is a saving God. Pastor Arkin Hughes, he writes, when the apostle uses the same word to describe the coming of grace. He so intertwines who Christ is with what Christ provides that that the two become inseparable in our consideration. You see, it's very simple for us this morning. Christ is grace. You see, salvation is uh, is not dictated on what we bring to the table, praise God. You see, it is impossible for us to earn our salvation. It's impossible for us to do enough what we consider good things to order uh, in order to earn salvation. You see, it's impossible. You see, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God is what Jesus is about and is also who he is. Our second point this morning is the grace of God trains Christ followers for this life while also preparing for a coming age. You see, then Paul, after the beginning portion of, of today's passage, you see Paul transitions 
to, a, to, to an intimate and immense effect that salvation has on us. You see, it is impossible to be saved for an eternity with an actual understanding of what you're being saved from without being impacted on a personal level. You see, when, uh, when we realize the depths of which we've been saved, the natural response is to be overwhelmed with a sense of thanksgiving. It's to be overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. You see, salvation has an impact uh, not only or has an impact on the here and now, as well as a greater impact on our eternity. You see, what grace, what grace has appeared, or what, what the grace that has appeared requires is phrased in both negative and positive implications. So, you know, I know Pastor John a few weeks ago said that if you have three points and each of those points have a sub-point, then you really have a six-point sermon, right? Sorry. So, you know, the, uh, so we have both negative and we have, and we have positive implications. You see, whenever you see this, our salvation has, has impacts. And the first one is that there is a time to say no. We see that there's a time to say no in Titus chapter 2, the beginning part of verse 14. says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You see, godliness is a, is a reference to conduct or misconduct of a Christ follower. You see, we are called to deny ourselves of external conduct that betrays God. You see, uh, the King James Version the, uh, describes this as lusts, you see. Uh, or or other, other versions translated as worldly appetites or desires or cravings. You see, there are many things that fall under these categories. You see, whether it's sexual compulsions or anger or hatred or uncontrolled speech or behavior, you see, these, these, these prohibitions aren't given as a way for us to get to God. You see, rather, these categories are a consequence of appearing, of the appearing grace that is God in Christ. You see, when we, when, we, when we have seen the clear appearance of God's beautiful grace, then we have an intense realization and awareness of our unholiness. You see, whenever you see how perfect, whenever you realize how perfect God is, then it, it reveals how messed up we are. You see, the problem with comparing is typically for Christ followers, we're, we're guilty of comparing our sin to someone who we believe is a much better sinner than we are. And I'm talking about that they sin much more than we do, right? I, well, my, my problem is as bad as so-and-so's sin. But the problem is, it's not really a comparing game. You see, we are compared to a perfect God. And whenever, whenever, whenever we experience the beautiful grace that, uh, that, that God has given through Christ, then we have this awareness of how messed up and how dirty we actually are. You see, this particular context, or in this particular context, grace trains us, as Paul states in verse 12. So not only... Is there a time to say no? There's also a time for living yes. You see, as we finish off the, uh, the, uh, verse 14, it says, And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You see, grace appeared, which also means that we are to live lives of self-control. You see, the, the, the reason for this importance is that if you are in Christ, then you are called to live a life that is dependent 
on Christ. You see, living a godly life is not the consequence of sheer willpower, nor a result of simply, live, uh, simply deciding to live a godly life. I don't know about you guys, but there are many times that I'll wake up in the morning and I will, and I, you know what, today is going to be a good day, and you pray, but whenever you decide that I'm going to, I'm going to live, it's going to be a good day, and then you experience one four-way stop in Limestone County, and that's out the window, amen? It's one four-way stop, and you're like, what is going on here, people? And then you feel the conviction where you're like, okay, so I can't just decide to live live a, a godly life just by simply deciding that, okay, this is, today is the day. You see, godly living isn't just a New Year's resolution. You see, our hope is not living a good life. You see, our hope is the appearing glory of Christ that gave himself for us. So, so we see that, that there is a time of, of yes that you should say no. There's also a time for living, yes, but see, the, the, the last part of this point, at least, is, is living now prepares for a coming age. You see, the Apostle Paul reminds us that these standards of holy living are not just a matter of those that, that, that lived under the law. You see, Paul states that grace teaches us to live so as to honor God in present age, waiting for, his, waiting for our blessed hope appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, godliness remains an obligation to us until Christ returns. You see, the, the, future, uh, the future grace of Christ's, return, of Christ's return will mark our deliverance from the suffering of this world. R. Kent Hughes, who I quoted earlier, he also summarizes this this way. The grace of God provides in our past, present, and future uh, requires that we say no to the world by renouncing godliness or ungodliness and yes to God, assenting to righteousness now in the present age. You see, we're not only living now, but God's grace prepares us for a coming age. Our next point is that the grace of God teaches us who is Lord and empowers us to serve Him as Lord. You see, as we close out our time, this morning, I want us to focus on verse 14. You see, we see Titus chapter 2, verse 14 says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, the doctrine of salvation is the study of how we are saved from the spiritual death and separation of God and this this doctrine of salvation can be appropriately discussed in all three tenses. You see you've got the past, the present, and the future. You see if we look and we see if we if we look at uh, the doctrine of salvation in the past, we see that we are delivered uh, from sin's penalty. That's what is referred to as justification. In the present, we are delivered from sin's power, which is uh, referred to as sanctification. And then for future, we are delivered from sin's presence, which is glorification. You see, we see that all three are present in this morning's passage from the Apostle Paul. You see, as a result of the goal of salvation being to glorify God, we are able to see that He has already taken care of it. You see, as we close out our time this morning, we see that, uh, first off, we see that Jesus paid for us. 
You see, this is a reference to, to the nature of, of Jesus' substitutionary death. You see, this purpose, this purpose given in today's passage that Jesus' death is to redeem us from all lawlessness. You see, Jesus gave himself for us. You see, author, author Ellis J. Scrum, he writes, He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. And he sums it up very beautifully there. You see, throughout, his, uh, throughout Jesus' earthly, earthly ministry, Jesus would reveal the reason for his arrival. You see, the arrival that we celebrate at Christmas time, we see that in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, For even the, uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus paid our debt and paid a debt that we are unable to pay. So we see that um, we see part of the doctrine of salvation here. We also see it because Jesus makes us righteous. You see, the reason that Jesus purchased us is to cleanse us or to make us righteous. Author and pastor uh, David Platt, he puts it this way. He says, God's grace takes us out of the pig pen. It does not help us enjoy the pig pen. You see, while sin makes us guilty and dirty, God's grace makes us innocent and clean. You see, this is the promise of the new covenant that we see in Ezekiel 35, uh, 36, uh, verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, or un- uncleannesses, and from, all, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. You see, through Christ we are made clean. We also see that Jesus possesses us. So Jesus doesn't pay for us, and Jesus doesn't make us righteous just to leave us alone, but Jesus possesses us. You see, purchasing us and making us righteous isn't enough. You see, Christ did this to possess us, and his possession is for our benefit. You see, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 tells us, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the, excellence, the excellencies of him, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you, were, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, uh, if you think about, uh, about how wonderful this is, especially during this time of, uh, of the Christmas season, you see, once we were separated from God, we were dead in our sin, but through Christ we are able to not only be alive in Christ, but we are sons and daughters of Christ. Sons and daughters of God. See, the last thing that we see is that Jesus prepares us. You see, as we, as we look at this, we see, we see that Jesus prepares us through, through the uh, doctrine of salvation. You see, those, those that have his holy, ho- those that are his have a holy passion that are revealed at the end of verse 14. You see, his peop- uh, people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, this is such a refreshing reminder, once again, that good works are not required for salvation, yet are a product of salvation. You see, our works have a natural response to His work. You see, having the realization of how far off the mark we really are and the love that God has for us to make a way for us back to Him, the result is we become zealous for Him. We want to point others to Christ. You see, this passion reveals that the grace of God 
on the basis, uh, reveals that the grace of God is the basis of godly living. You see, Martin Luther best summarized this by stating, he says, uh, he said, I live as though Christ died yesterday, rose again today, and is coming again tomorrow. You see, currently our pursuit of godliness, of godliness is between the death and resurrection of Christ and his second coming. You see, our pursuit for godliness is sandwiched between the grace of, of Christ's first coming, which is celebrated here at Christmas time, and the glory of Christ's return. You see, as we see, as we dive in, as we look at the, God's grace, we see that grace teaches us who is Lord, and grace also empowers us to serve Him as Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful for the opportunity once again to be here to worship you and to dive into your word and and see that the Christmas season, although at my parents' house the Christmas tree has been long down, but God, that uh, that is still a season to celebrate. It's still a season where we are where we are looking forward to Christ's return. But God, we also see that your grace impacts us until the day of his return. And uh, God, my prayer, my prayer is that uh, this morning, if we have anyone in, this, in, in our room that's watching online that has heard that um, salvation is dictated on what you do. Salvation is a decision that you make. Salvation is a decision that you try to earn. That we'll realize, God, that there's never a way that we're going to earn it. There's never a way that we're just going to decide it. But, God, that we trust you. God, that you've done enough already that we'll just put our faith and trust in you. God, my prayer is for those that are already in Christ, that we will receive encouragement knowing that we do not have to earn your favor, which frees us up, God, through your grace. To be zealous for good works, knowing that it's that it doesn't uh, impact the favor that you have for us, but God, that you, knowing that you delight, you delight in our works that point others to you, not as a way for salvation for us, but as a way to be a living testimony. God, as we look over over grace, you know, grace has ha- arrived at Christmas, at the first Christmas. My prayer is that we will see the freedom that that grace brings, that it takes all the weight off of our shoulders and puts it on Christ. God, this season, this season as we wait for the second coming, my prayer is that we will cling to your grace like never before and rest in the gospel, rest in what Christ has done on our behalf. And through that, God, we will experience a freedom like no other. We love you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful that you care enough for us, that you care enough for your creation, that you sent Christ to not only pay for us, to make us righteous, but also also to possess us, Lord. We love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.